In our first episode, we said that Coriolanus is about what happens when a culture gets what it wants. The great soldier Caius Martius Coriolanus is the epitome of Roman ideals, and yet those same ideals help turn him into Rome's greatest enemy. In this episode, we'll explore the contradictions at the heart of Coriolanus' story and ask how his character is transformed by the end. Philip Lorenz, professor of English at Cornell University, guides our discussion. All of the Roman plays are about being Roman, and at the heart of that is the city-state, Rome itself. The city is the highest cultural achievement, kind of model for identity and values. The basic lines of argumentation of the play all hinge on who or what is Roman. What does it mean to be Roman? It's a cultural idea or ideal, a kind of construction shaped by notions of virtue, valor, stoicism, and devotion to the state. Coriolanus is Rome's great warrior general. The play draws on a classic metaphor for thinking about the city-state, the metaphor of the body politic. Meninius's fable of the belly represents the state as a single living organism, emphasising the interdependence of all its parts and the need for their mutual cooperation. So Coriolanus is a play of questions and relations, particularly political questions. They have to do with the best forms of organising society and distributing power. And Shakespeare takes the organs of organization very seriously and runs with them metaphorically. How is the best way to think about the relationship of those organs in the entire body? What do they need to live well? What kind of food, nourishment, or support is the key metaphors of the, the human body are a classical way of thinking about that connectedness. How do the parts fit to the whole? This is a play that really examines the relationship between parts and wholes and whether what it means to be Roman is really a possibility apart from the whole. Coriolanus is the quintessential Roman, and he loves Rome, the idea, but he doesn't like its parts, its people. And so there's those questions that Shakespeare's asking. How are we part of something larger than ourselves? Meninius's fable asks the plebeians to imagine themselves as parts that mutually participate within a cooperative whole. But Coriolanus's language represents them as dysfunctional fragments or scraps of the body, as a disease like measles, or as a monstrous mass, a many-headed multitude. He does not see them as organs that sustain the body politic because they are too changeable. Trust you, he says, when every minute you do change your mind. He identifies the people as mutable. The citizens he considers fundamentally inconstant and therefore not worthy of belonging. One of the fundamental questions the play raises is what does make someone worthy of political belonging? In the Senate, the tribunes demand, what is the city but the people? Simply existing within a community, they imply, should give you a voice within that community. And which way the voices go is the way the power should go too. By the consent of all, we were established the people's magistrates, they say. Coriolanus has a different view. For him, political participation is not something to which every person is simply entitled. It must be earned in some way, by position, by skill or by service. This basic political question of whether the power is a right or a reward is reflected in the play through the issue of food. 
What is Coriolanus a play about? Hunger, to begin with. The plebeians see food as a universal right, arguing, we hear, that meat was made for mouths, that the gods sent not corn for the rich men only. But for Coriolanus, food too must be earned. When the people are given corn for free, he objects that they ne'er did service for it. In his eyes, food should be a reward for service. It's not enough that someone simply be hungry. But Coriolanus may be hungry himself. The source of that hunger, scholars including Janet Edelman have suggested, is the person who was supposed to supply him with food, his mother. If there is one embodiment of Romanness, one fulfillment of the ideals of valor and stoicism, honor above all else, including love and marital um, connection and warmth, it is volumnia. For volumnia, being Roman means sacrificing everything for honor, as she did when she sent her young son to war. I sprang not more in joy at first hearing he was a man-child than now in first seeing he had proved himself a man, she tells Virgilia. His existence as her child was not more valuable than the glory he won in battle. Like corn, it seems, love should be given for merit more than need. Volumnia expresses her admiration for her son's merit in a telling image. The breasts of Hecuba, when she did suckle Hector, looked not lovelier than Hector's forehead when it spit forth blood. The, the lovely aspect of Hecuba for Volumnia is not the nourishing, maternal feeding of the son, um, but blood spouting from the hero's head. Volumnia tells Coriolanus, Thy valentness was mine, thou suckst it from me. What she fed him was not so much food as certain standards of honour, honour that demanded he shed his blood in battle. Perhaps being fed on valiantness left Coriolanus hungry for physical and emotional nourishment. But he also dislikes the idea of hunger. It implies need and his identity is built on independence and invulnerability. He is one whose education has led him to renounce all notions of vulnerability. He's, he's instilled with the view of himself as invincible. And in fact, he confirms it in his battles. He proves to be quite invincible. What, what ends up being his undoing are things that don't occur on the battlefield, but that easily could be understood in more psychological and affective terms. What it means to be both an individual human being and a member of a com community have affects, feelings, desires. And Coriolanus has those, but they sit uncomfortably with his sense of invincibility. For Coriolanus, being invincible means being unchangeable, not being swayed from one's purpose by emotions or by other people. As Avidius says, he wants not to be other than one thing. But it is up for debate what that one thing is. Though self-conscious men can be content to say his service was for his country, he did it to please his mother and to be partly proud, says one plebeian, while Aphidius wonders whether it was pride, whether defect of judgment or whether nature that made him scorn the people. 
Is Coriolanus strong, stubborn or foolish? An unshakable servant of his country or merely self-serving, doing all his great deeds for his own fame and pride? Whichever it is, all characters agree on one thing. Whatever Coriolanus is like, no one else is like him. Cominius says admiringly that he cannot in the world be singly counterpoised, while a tribune says he has no equal for his faults. The emphasis on Coriolanus's uniqueness reveals a paradox regarding Roman values. As part of its collective ideal, Rome values singular forms of greatness, constancy, autonomy, absolute strength. When Coriolanus confronts Ophidius, he cries, let the first budger die the other's slaves and the gods doom him after. The ideal Roman is not simply constant, he is more constant, more immovable, more powerful than others. He won't budge. But it would be impossible for every member of society to achieve these inherently competitive ideals. These are communal Roman values, but striving to meet them sets you at odds with your community. Coriolanus lives out this paradox. On the one hand, he is contemptuous of those who are not like him. On the other hand, he takes pride in being unlike anyone else. In public, he refuses praise, but when he wants to brag, he brags of what he did alone. This sense of being set apart makes it difficult for him to find a place in his community. He has trouble cooperating even with his peers. He doesn't want to govern alongside the patricians. I'd rather be their servant in my way than sway with them in theirs, he says. And he certainly cannot bend his will to those he considers inferiors. He refuses to show the plebeians his wounds because this would imply that he fought to please them. To brag unto them and show them the unaching scars which I should hide, as if I had received them for the hire of their breath only. Coriolanus serves Rome, but not for the sake of other Romans. It's more for what he calls his own truth. Think of the wounds he has to expose to the Roman audience and allow them to, as they say, put their tongues into those wounds, which means technically to give him their voices, their votes, but poetically it clearly means to speak for the significance of his body, to give his body political meaning, something that he's absolutely unwilling to do. He believes that he is in control of his own body and that's enough meaning. I think it's helpful to think about it in terms of the, the gulf or gap between invincibility and vulnerability and his utter denial that he has vulnerability. All of the scenes likening public performance and political action to theatre clearly make him feel exposed and vulnerable and uncomfortable and give the lie to this self-understanding of invincibility. And the phrase, my own truth, is really key, I think, for understanding the problem of Coriolanus. What does it mean to have one's own truth, especially when one's own identity is completely enmeshed with being the embodiment of something bigger than the self, the, the state of Rome itself. Coriolanus embodies all of Roman 
ideals, his own truth would seem to come into conflict with a conception of Roman identity that is collective by definition. His own truth leads to the question of autonomy and to what degree one can have one's own truth and at the same time be part of a larger structure from which one also derives one's very sense of selfhood. So I think what's tragic about it is the unyielding commitment to his own truth, which his culture reinforces, and his very same culture's destruction of that commitment. When his mother and friends ask him to suppress his disdain and speak kindly to the people, their request makes good political sense. It is the kind of compromise that a cooperative body requires. But this request also violates the sense of absolute integrity that they have always praised in Coriolanus. He asks, would you have me false to my nature? The elite Roman class created the ideal of the constant nature that Coriolanus embodies, a nature so unswayable that it cannot be influenced even by the very class that created it. Rejecting the instructions of his peers, Coriolanus vents his fury at the people and is banished. He then turns his Roman valour against Rome. The play asks us to consider whether this is a change in Coriolanus's character, or is it simply his Roman nature taken to its extreme but logical conclusion? When Coriolanus marches on Rome, one of the tribunes asks, is it possible that so short a time can alter the condition of a man? Menenius replies, There is difference between a grub and a butterfly, yet your butterfly was a grub. This Martius is grown from man to dragon. He has wings. He's more than a creeping thing. He suggests Coriolanus has not, in fact, altered, but rather has manifested more of the nature he has always had. He then describes him in action. When he walks, he moves like an engine. His hum is a battery. He's transformed into a kind of tank, to a kind of a total healing machine. Coriolanus was trained to be this killing machine and rewarded for it. The way Menenius describes him now, as a piece of weaponry, as an inhuman force, as a thing, is the same way the patricians praised him. When Cominius recounted his deeds in battle to the Senate, he compared him to a vessel under sail, overpowering all before him. From face to foot he was a thing of blood and struck Coriolis like a planet. Worthy man, cried Menenius. Rome taught Coriolanus to be unyielding, and so it is not surprising that he won't yield even to Rome. At least, until he finally does. After his mother begs him to show mercy to Rome, he finally agrees. The interesting question may not be why Coriolanus turns on Rome, but why he spares it. It's, it's complex. I mean, I think in a way the inextricability of mother and son has been the problem from the beginning. A son who has seen himself as independent, as autonomous, as all self-sufficient, and who contains his own truth is forced to confront the limitations of such a, such a conviction. 
Roman valor is, is in a way the ideal of autonomy and you know, it's best expressed by someone who is simultaneously t- very dependent on his mother and that will be the crux of the tragedy. How we understand Coriolanus's relationship with his mother shapes how we understand his decision to spare Rome. Some readers have seen this decision as a breakdown of Coriolanus's pretense to absolute autonomy. Earlier, he wanted to stand as if man were author of himself. But his mother insists, I helped to frame thee. And he is forced to admit that she is right. He must acknowledge that he depends as much on his mother's love and approval for his identity as he depended on her for the very origin of his life, and so he cannot help but do as she asks. Other readers, including Heather James, see this moment differently. What Coriolanus recognises may not be his dependence on his mother, but her dependence on him. It is also his identity that shapes hers – Everything that he is, she claims as her own. When she told him against his will to retract his harsh words to the people, she declared, I mock at death with as big a heart as thou. Thy valiantness was mine. Thou suckst it from me. Now, as she orders him once more to go back on his purpose, she emphasises his indebtedness to her. There's no man in the world more bound to his mother. She tells him that thy dear mother clucked thee to the wars and safely home, loaden with honour, as if his safety and his honours were really due to her. Volumnia believes she is the real power behind Coriolanus's power, which also makes her the ultimate source of Rome's strength, and Coriolanus, bending his will to hers, allows her to think so, You have won a happy victory to Rome, he tells her. You deserve to have a temple built you. All the swords in Italy could not have made this peace. Coriolanus's final act may be not only a political sacrifice, giving up a military victory, but a personal sacrifice, giving up his own identity to preserve his mother's. He holds his mother by the hand and says, Oh, mother, mother, what have you done? You have won a happy victory to Rome. The victory is Volumnia's. Coriolanus sacrifices himself finally for the good of his mother and for the good of others. But he doesn't take credit for the sacrifice. He gives the victory to to her. He has ultimately given in to his mother's request for mercy, knowing that it's his own death sentence. And that raises the question of whether what he thinks he's done in his own mind is a sacrifice. And I don't know, because we get such little picture of that mind. But easy, easy to see how the ending could be read in a sacrificial way. This character for whom his own truth, his autonomy, his self, has consisted of not allowing those very human things in, not showing mercy, finally does. But whatever it is, it all reverts back the second that he's called boy by Ophidius. Coriolanus's own truth, his autonomy is alive and well, or at least his attachment to that story, to that narrative, to that way of understanding himself. Something has changed in Coriolanus when he gives way to his mother. 
whether unwillingly out of dependency and need or deliberately out of sacrificial compassion, the immovable man is moved. But the final scene raises a question of how deep this change or metamorphosis really goes. One way of summarising what the tragedy of Coriolanus is, is about is a character who either is or is incapable of metamorphosing. The discussion of metamorphosis between Menenius and the Tribune, there's a difference between a grub and a butterfly, yet your butterfly was a grub. So here the, the association, the complex juxtaposition of Coriolanus to the butterfly, I think is really worth reflecting on. Yet your butterfly was a grub. This Martius is grown from man to dragon. He has wings. He's more than a creeping thing. We have this central image of the butterfly. It's at the heart of the play. It's in the beginning, it's in the middle, and it's in the end in this metamorphosis image from butterfly to dragon. The metaphorics of butterfly implies that Coriolanus grows and changes. Is there growth in, in the play? I think up to the point of the very last scene, you could say there is. We do see change in a character who has been up to now unchangeable in terms of his identity and self-understanding. But when at the end, after achieving something that he hadn't been interested in achieving at any point in the play or presumably in his career, which is a political reconciliation and peace, he returns to what I would call his fantasy of autonomy. I don't know if it's the fantasy or if it's the fulfillment of autonomy that both allows him to be the glorious hero warrior than he is, and that also kills him. Earlier, Volumnia and her friend delighted in a story about Coriolanus's son chasing a butterfly over and over until he suddenly caught it and tore it in his teeth. One of his father's moods, said Volumnia approvingly, in the final scene, this image returns in two ways. One that positions Coriolanus as his son, tearing apart the delicate winged creature, and another that positions Coriolanus as the creature. Aphidius, angered by Coriolanus's change of heart and wanting to destroy him, tells the Volskis how Coriolanus broke his oath and gave up their victory over Rome. He finally insults him by calling him boy. Furious, Coriolanus cannot help provoking the Volskis further by driving home just how superior a man he is. Boy, false hound, like an eagle in a dovecoat, I fluttered your Volsians in Coriolis. Alone I did it. Boy. And they call out, tear him to pieces, six of Ophidius's followers with repeated words, kill, 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 kill kill him, stand on him, tear him apart, the way the butterfly is torn apart earlier in the play. In a clear recollection, I think, I think Shakespeare's returning to the metaphor here. So one could say that he's become in the, he's at least positioned in the butterfly place, which is the place of beauty, which maybe has no place in such a world. I'm trying to get at the whole question of whether Coriolanus changes. Does he grow up or does he remain, in a way, the boy who's rewarded for tearing apart these beautiful creatures and is unable to mature? Butterflies, in a way, thread 
the play through to the end. I mean, Butterfly is a figure of beauty. It's a figure of nature. It's a figure of fragility. And of course, it is the product of metamorphosis. Does Coriolanus change? And what finally undoes him? Is he destroyed by his unchanging devotion to his own autonomy? Or by his surprising sacrifice of that autonomy to his country and his family? He has wings, Menenius says. Are they the dragons or the butterflies? In our next episode, we'll return to this crucial image as we hear characters describe Coriolanus and his son. We'll also hear what it means to Coriolanus to honour mine own truth. <laughs>